but to to show that to the student when they're learning how to how to make a an adjective a noun mm-hmm. um, agree would be overwhelming, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we don't we don't point that out. But to point that out to a student after the fact of like, look at what you can do. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing: kids don't know what their peers don't know. Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Memoria Press. Hello, and welcome to Classical Etc. My name is Jessica Gardner, and my role here at Memoria Press is at Memoria Academy, where we offer online classes utilizing the Memoria Press materials. And I am here today with Martin Cawthorn and Paul Schaefer. And today we're going to tackle a question from someone in the MP community. Uh, she is asking for practical advice with her teenager having a conversation with her student about why she chose classical education. But before we dive in, we are going to talk about what we're reading. So, gentlemen, the question for every episode. <laughs> Once again, we're always, it's, it's so weird. Because Paul, it, the the look on his face is is the same as I feel, which is always, gosh, why didn't I think of the fact that this was going to be the first question asked? Because we you, do it every single are you, time. Are you projecting that feeling onto me? Because that is, yeah. in fact, not what I feel. I just look at you because I know that you feel that way. But I felt better and, <laughs> thinking that. So, And Martin, I was um, going to toss it to you first, because yesterday we were talking about what we were reading. What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> tell, what was I? You, what am I reading? You know what? We were talking about books you were collecting. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm actually, I, and I may have said this before, I, I had I mentioned this book several times, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning by Nigel Bigger. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I think I said it on the show that I, I finished reading it. I had it all marked up because it was a, just a great book with lots of really interesting facts in it about British colonialism and I left it on a plane. I had literally, oh, oh. I had literally marked it and, and, and I was, I was in the middle of the last chapter and I left it on a plane and I was so bummed. And so I ordered the book and I'm reading it again. That's how wow. very few books I, would I do. That I remember with. you mentioning this book on colonialism, but I did not hear the end of that story before. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that good for a second read. Yo, absolutely. Huh. And, and I, it's, you know, I also, there's always a book I pick to give to my, you know, my friends during Christmas. And, um, that's the book. Problem is it's this big and it's a hardback and it's really expensive, but <laughs> it's worth it. Um, so I'm giving that to a number of people this Christmas. But when there were these Christian revivals in England, and he doesn't talk about this specifically, but it's, it's clearly in the background of this book. Um, they spent 150 years um, uh, uh, trying to stop the slave trade. They did mm. it. It cost them money, a lot of money. It was like at one point like 20% of their budget. And they did this for no other reason than the fact that they were a Christian country. Mm. Okay, that's not good. Okay, I, I don't understand that. Why is that not a good thing? And, and in the way, you know, the British, they have this, they're about order. Mm-hmm. And peace and free trade. Mm. Yeah, just bringing nuance to the conversation. Oh, totally right. Totally. I mean, that's that. You know, it, it it doesn't sound like it's a book saying everything was hunky dory, right? 
they made mistakes, but There's, they were they were yeah. almost all the mistakes were against the policy that the British had. Mm. It was the exception, and it was not the Isn't rule. Isn't that the human experience, though? Yeah. Like our our mm. our theory is good, and then when it comes down to practice, practice, Execution. we really screw it up. Sounds like a good read. That <laughs> yeah, was a great read. Yeah. How about I'd you, Paul? Uh, well, I went back and I mentioned uh, earlier that I had started the Prague Cemetery. And I went back and had to reread the first uh, by Umberto Eco. So he wrote The Name of the Rose, which is a yes. great book. And you went and read another book after you well, read so that one? Well, so now I have, <laughs> so I've got The Prague Cemetery, which was gifted to me. And and I have Foucault's Pendulum. So I want to read both of these by Echo because I, I just, I greatly enjoyed The Name of the Rose. And actually, Name of the Rose is on my list to go back and reread. But um, I started with The Prague Cemetery. The synopsis, I went back and reread the synopsis. I'm like, I have no idea really what this is about. And the synopsis didn't really help me much. So it's going to be like, most of the time I like to know where a novel is headed. I like, I have a cousin who she will read the the last chapter of a book before she even starts because she wants to know how it ends. Mm-hmm. I'm not that crazy. But I do like to know like, what's the general thrust of this story? I have absolutely no idea, but I've decided to suspend my my own issues and just decide I'm going to like be on this journey with this author but the first, the first chapter is absolutely politically incorrect in every conceivable way. Um, so you so, love it. <laughs> you know, as far as like wanting to know where I'm going, I just said, I'm just going to have to suspend that part and just roll with it and see, see where we end up. And uh, speaking of that author, um, I'm reading a book called The Black Swan. It's one of these books about that sort of question basic assumptions about how we react in society or economically or whatever. And, um, and so... Uh, he talks about Echo in that book. And at the very beginning of the book, and it's one of those ones I, you know, the passages I go and I write down somewhere, uh, which is that uh, what is Umberto Becco, uh, Echo's uh, uh, definition, uh, term, anti-library. Hmm. Are you familiar with I did not know okay, he had well, this term. Okay, so <laughs> what it is, um, he, he talks about how, uh, you know, when the person comes into your library and they look around and they said, have you read all these books? And I have been making the point, look, this is not a trophy case. Mm. These are, these is my reference library. These are the books I refer to. A lot of them I read, a lot of them I haven't read. And, and echo basically says that the more unread books you have in your library, the better the library is. And he calls that the anti-library. Oh, interesting. And I, 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 I never heard that concept. And that's what I have at home. I have an anti-library. There's actually a huh. fascinating little clip on YouTube of, I think it was the BBC that was like doing a, an interview with, with Umberto Eco. Mm. And like in the middle of the interview, he gets up to go get a book. And they follow him through yeah, this labyrinth, labyrinth of a library. <laughs> yeah. He's got bookshelves on every side and he just without pause, like he walks through rooms and rooms and rooms and finally gets exactly right to the book he wants. You <laughs> of know, course. I mean, it's amazing, but he, I mean, uh, it's an improvement on my method, he, which is to go in there and look around for about 30 minutes <laughs> till I find, <laughs> if I find he, it at all, <laughs> you know, I'm sure, I mean, it's evident he's a very well-read individual, but he, um, he, yeah, he's known he, as a polymath, but he also mm-hmm. knew exactly like he he had his structure in his library. He knew exactly where everything was. Mm-hmm. I also have a book of uh, his essays, which sure. are, are more like they're more like um, most of them are opinion pieces that he like he wrote opinion pieces in a newspaper for years, an Italian newspaper, and they collected those. And it's funny to me how many times he's ranting about cell phones. 
Um, mm-hmm. it's, huh. it's, I mean, it's an enjoyable read cause you can kind of see through the nineties, early two thousands, you know, kind of like how he progressively ranted a little bit more. It, it, I've enjoyed that too. I picked that up every once in a while. But anyway, that's uh, right <laughs> a kindred <now> on, spirit. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, right now I'm on echo. That's, that's okay. where I'm living. Nice. Nice. I, I, remember, I read name of the rose, but it was, it, it's a tough read. I think. Oh, I um, although think, it I, is interesting. I I mean I loved it. It's a, it's a book to think about. But I feel mm. I feel like the name of the rose was a fairly straightforward narrative. Mm. And I'm afraid that both the Proximitary and Foucault's Pendulum yeah. are not going to be nearly that straightforward and actually where he's referring to a lot of cultural stuff that I don't know. Right. And oh. and Name of the Rose is a is a murder mystery basically that mm-hmm. takes place in the Middle Ages and at a monastery. So right. a very interesting setting for a murder mystery. Right. Yeah. I'd but, say. Yeah. So I, I I'll have to come back and report on the Prague Cemetery. You will. Yeah. yeah. I just picked up Eric Larson's In the Garden of Beasts. It's it's a historical account of the first American ambassador to Germany, to Nazi Germany. And he uh, recounts this man's life in Berlin with his daughter. This is prior to World War II? Mm-hmm. So it's the in the early 30s. National Socialists are taking over? Mm-hmm. Wow. So yeah, it's supposed to be, I, it, it's detailed, so it'll it, take me a while. Is it fiction or nonfiction? It's nonfiction. Okay. So I, I haven't gotten too far into it, um, but but I'm excited. And, and I enjoy or like... Um, that reading about that period and you know, it's kind of had a renaissance in the last 10 Mm -hmm. years. So. Yeah. yeah. I've actually been surprised. I don't know how I got into this, but I I was recently, I watched a document, a couple of documentaries on the prosecution they've done of Nazis, like in the early two thousands, like these guys are in their nineties and they're, they're still, they're still going after us. On trial. Yeah. 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 And Eric Larson was, uh, we talked about this the other day. Mm -hmm. I, I had not, been aware of him. That's the kind of writer I normally would be aware of. And then I'm looking mm, at all the other books. I'm going, Ooh, right. Uh, yeah. I, need I think one of his most notable is devil in the white city. Um, it won a couple of awards, I think. Mm-hmm. And anyway, well, but and yeah, that, Eric Larson is the author that of the book that Tanya gave you. Okay. That's what it yeah. is. Yeah. And oh, I don't know oh, what the okay. title of that book was, but yeah. I guess people would go and I look think at the It's the same. Episode. It may be the same book. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Well, book oh. club, book club. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Well, (laughs) today we have a terrific question from someone in the MP community, and I'm really excited for the opportunity to talk through it on the podcast because it gives us the chance to, with really practical help, do what we love to do, which is equipping our community with information, but also confidence to educate your children classically. Um, so I'm going to read the question from Marion, and she left this on our YouTube channel after our episode on why to teach Greek. So here's what she says. She says, could you do an episode about opening a conversation with high school students to explain why you, as the parent, chose classical education for them? I've been using Memoria Press materials in our homeschool for the past 10 years, And now that my two oldest of six children are 15 and 13, I would love to sit down and have a conversation with them about why their education is so different from that of their public school friends and from the education their father and I received in public schools and answer any questions they have about that. I know I could just wing it, 
but I would love to hear if the Memoria staff has any words of wisdom to share. Thanks. Well, Marion, you don't have to wing it. We would love to help you. And I have two experts for this question, Martin and Paul, because um, we want to give you, uh, yeah, the tools that you need to, to navigate this conversation. And Paul, I want to start with you. She asked for words of wisdom. You have no shortage. <laughs> but you are with our high schoolers here at HLS in Louisville every day. Mm-hmm. You see teenagers every day. You're teaching them. Yep. <laughs> so with them in mind, how would you do this? Where would you start? Uh, well, that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because when I was teaching those high schoolers at Highlands four years ago, and we were talking about what does it mean to be? And we start talking about, you know, the universals and then we got to the transcendentals and we got to beauty. And I was trying to, trying to make the point that there can be an objective standard of beauty. It's not just all utterly subjective. And, and, and then we got into how, you know, with, with children, you have to form their appetites, right? You have to, mm-hmm. you have to get them um, exposed to the things that are, orderly and beautiful and proportional mm. and harmonious. And, mm-hmm. and that's what they learned to love. Mm. And the look on these kids' faces were like, you all have been intentionally trying to define what I like. I mean, they were like really taken aback by that thought mm-hmm. was that, um, you know, we we naturally grow up, I think, in this in this idea that we make our own choices, hmm. right? Okay, and we are we are we are um, unaware of the circumstances around us actually influencing who we become, hmm. and and so you know, it ended up having to be like a long conversation about. Look, yes, I mean. If you were left to your own devices, what would you like? Probably punk rock and, you know, Picasso. I mean, I you know, I don't know. But if we expose you to Michelangelo and Raphael and and um and Beethoven and and Bach and Mozart, then maybe it's maybe you don't turn on Mozart when you get in the car every day. You know, I don't, but I do know how to appreciate it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because when I went through school, I was exposed to all that. I spent many, many hours watching performances and and documentaries about classical music and understanding how it works. And so I have an appreciation for it in a way that I wouldn't otherwise. But um, but students, students think that they're oftentimes they think that they're just they're choosing what they want, but we're intentionally forming them. And that was that caught me by surprise because it, it, in my school and high school formation was often talked about. Okay. It was often talked about that you're undergoing a process of formation. Everybody has to be formed. And so it, it was normal for us, but for my students, it was not even on their horizon that education is formation. Mm. And so I, I mean, maybe that is um, a conversation that a parent would want to start like dropping little seeds mm-hmm. of, you know, mm. we we have to, um, you know, as humans, we're constantly trying to grow. And so you you have to be formed into, you know, the kind of person 
that you want to be, it's not just going to happen to be that way. Mm. And if you start dropping those seeds, then when you come to a, like a, a, a formal conversation, that thought's already there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if the thought isn't there already. Yeah. It's just going to be something where you're yeah. like, they might push back on it. I, I, I remember the moment I realized that every game in my house as a child, my mother had intentionally sourced and decided whether it could come in the house or not based on whether it was educational. Hmm. And the first time a game came into the house that was not educational and she raised such a stink about it, I went, what? <laughs> like this time we've had fun as a family playing Pinochle? Like you were trying to get me to learn to do math? You know, like that kind of thing. It was yeah. it was shocking to me when I realized that about like 10 or 11 years old. And then, but then as when I left, when, when I went into a private school and the conversation was about formation, then I really got mm-hmm. used to that idea. Well, I forgot what the question was, but um, <laughs> what Paul said was, was making me think that, you know, our, our students come into our classrooms, even from the most Christian homes, mm. as subjectivists. And I think the, the, we have done a good job of, of addressing the question or, or, or making the case that truth is objective, that there, there are certain things that are and there are certain things that aren't, and you can feel however you want to about them. But that is the case. But they still come with an idea, I think, that goodness is relative in some way. And, and beauty. That, and that beauty is relative in some way. And I think that's where the battle is, really. Uh, you, you, you should be able to go from the truth being objective to the rest of those things. But that they don't make those connections. And, you know, to, to make them understand and, you know, when you get to the upper grades, maybe you're, you're, you know, teaching, you know, Plato or something who, who's addressing particularly the issue of the good, that there is something out there that's metaphysically there, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not. And your responsibility is to conform yourself to that. Mm. And this, and then beauty is the, is the, because beauty is the thing that gets relativized first historically. Mm. And it's, it's the hardest one to treat. Um, and yet, you know, if you really think about that, you, you realize that it is objective. There, there are some things you can look at. You, if I could take two things, you know, the, 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 um, of the Pieta, let's say by Michelangelo and some terrible thing. And we'd say, yeah, well, that's beautiful. And that's not. And then you mm-hmm. make it more and more problematic, and it 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 you're you're tempted to believe that there's some things that you just can't judge. No, there are standards uh, of beauty. Um, there is the beautiful, mm-hmm. and it is there, and it's subjective, and it's real, just like everything else. It's harder to detect. It's harder to come with with good criteria for what that is, but it's ultimately undeniable. And so to to communicate to students that. Um, that reality is all those things and that reality is, is objective. It's there as a certain, and, and just because people feel differently about it is irrelevant. So that's just my reaction right. to well, that but situation. What that, what that brings to mind is the critique my wife levied against the entire classical movement. When, <laughs> Do tell. When we, were, when we were dating or newly married, I was newly married and she was traveling with me to different conferences and conventions. And she was like, 
everybody here is so arrogant. And and while you were talking about right objective standards of beauty and truth and goodness, mm-hmm. it made me think right that the very fact that we stand up and say we can know what it means f- to be good. Mm-hmm can come across as arrogance. When in fact, it's exactly the opposite. Well, And that's the point I wanted to yeah. make because you said we conform ourselves to it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we that's- We set our feelings, our, sometimes our judgment even, mm-hmm. aside. That's not arrogance. That's the right. opposite and, of but that's But that is, we don't talk about that yeah. often. Yeah. We just say there is a standard of goodness and we know what it is and we can teach other people about it. No, but, you know, but if we were to say there is an objective standard of goodness- and we have to submit to that. Mm-hmm. That's where we're going to keep that that humility, I think, front and center. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's but it's a it's it's an easy one to drop. Mm-hmm. It's such an easy thing to drop. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was it was an interesting conversation I I had with her because I I was just you know I was in the community and then she comes from outside and she's like, "This is what's going on here," and I was like, "Oh," and it totally changed my perspective on on the way. I tried to talk about things. Yeah. Sure. It's somehow perceived as less arrogant to say, uh, my feeling is more important than the truth itself. <laughs> right. I right. Understand that. Yeah. And, 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 but, but that's, but our default mode, right? Going back mm-hmm. to the students, mm-hmm. their default mode is my subjectivity gets to determine, you know, what something is or whether it's good or whether it's beautiful or, you know, and then, but it's it's a work of us helping them understand to be humble means submitting yourself to those other things, right? Mm. And so that's, I think, why my students were initially appalled at the idea of formation is because it meant that they would have to submit themselves to mm. an objective beauty and to an objective goodness. Mm. So that's really helpful. And what I'm what I'm kind of hearing from you is that this conversation between Marion and her 13-year-old is really a conversation about formation, her intentions, uh, and the big picture of what it's like to grow and develop as a human being. I would say, I mean, that's absolutely a part of the conversation. And that's mm-hmm. the part of the conversation that caught me by surprise when I started having it mm-hmm. with high schoolers. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, and those were later high schoolers. Those were juniors, right? I mm-hmm. think she said 13 and 15. Yep. You know, the younger they are, the more they're going to be open to that idea, I think, because the older they are and the more Mm. they're seeing themselves heading towards adult independence, Mm -hmm. that sort of formation becomes less and less attractive. And it's not like you're having to say, here's what I'm trying to teach you. Right. You just teach it. So you wouldn't be that explicit. Well, you don't have to be that explicit Mm -hmm. because, okay, so I, for many years, I taught Latin, I taught logic, I taught literature, okay? And so when you teach Latin, you're teaching grammar mm-hmm. and you're uncovering for the, because language, especially to English speakers, seems very subjective, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't seem like there are all that many rules and all that. And, but what Latin does for you is it disciplines your mind by teaching you these rules that underlie all language that you can't deny. Again, there's this objectivity there. There's a structure there. That, that that is there even though you don't see it. So you're presenting that to them. So there's an implicit kind of thing that look at the order underneath the language that you haven't really thought about how you do it, right? And then logic, you know, you're talking about the 10 categories of thought, um, the five predicables, the five ways of saying something about something else, the 
there, there are rules underneath. And I think that whole, I think when you have an education like that, you're implicitly getting the idea, oh, yeah, there, there's this thing I thought was just, I was making it up as I was going along, when in fact, there's, there's rules underneath everything. And so I think that that mm-hmm. just implicitly communicates to students uh, that there is some kind of objective order. Well, and I, I think that's actually, to, to try to boil things down for parents a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, maybe we could extrapolate from that the idea that when, um, if, if a parent were to contrast, like, why are we homeschooling you here classically as opposed to sending you to the local public school, the, it sounds like Marion, who went to public school herself, could could just attest and say, like, look, what mm-hmm. what is typical in in modern education is is this is an idea of discovery learning where they're not actually going to teach you content they're going to make you go out and figure it out yourself mm-hmm. and so what we're what I'm trying to provide for you in your education is a structured way of understanding the world where people before us have gone through and have have sort of uh, analyzed how the world is and, and figuring out what the structure is. And then I'm presenting that to you in a way Mm -hmm. that you can understand that and, um, and quickly master that as opposed to going out and having to figure it out yourself. Mm -hmm. And so like that immediately is, is I think an attractive thing to a student is like, Oh, you're going to tell me what I need to know. And I'm going to, I'm going to be able to learn that and I'm going to be able to be successful as opposed to your 10 years old, go do a research project on, you know, world war one. I mean, because those things happen in school, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even know where to start as a student. And so I think like that's, I mean, we, we're kind of talking about with, with truth, beauty, and goodness and objectivity versus subjectivity, right? And the idea of formation, that's one thing. The way the content is structured is, is, a, is a different thing about classical education, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's, with your younger kids, that's, that's the conversation you want to have is like, I didn't get this when I was a child. You know, it was all really confused for me and, you know, but we're giving you grammar rules that are clear and concise so that you can be successful. And the other thing is that I was, I was thinking earlier too, that, you know, we're sitting here talking and we both have a philosophy background and I can see a, a, a parent out there thinking, okay, yeah, you guys are philosophers. So you can talk about, all, but that's the thing. You don't need to think about it all that much. If you're doing Latin, if you're doing logic with programs like ours that set it down, how you do it, they're going to get that. Mm-hmm. And can you, you don't give have to a couple a examples? Can you say, okay, she said she's used MP for over 10 years. Can you think of an example that she could give and say, hey, Latin, for example? Okay. Or uh, a logic. Ma- match a, a Latin adjective to the noun it modifies. Yeah. You have to know the five cases, <laughs> right? Because you got a match in case. Yeah. They got a match in number. There's two of those, singular and plural. And it's got a match in um, case, Jen. Uh, and gender, gender, which right. there's three, that's 30 steps. Okay. That's like that, just that one simple thing. And it's all right. over Latin instruction. If it's done grammatically, um, rather than just conversationally, you don't really learn all that stuff mm-hmm. if you're right. just doing conversational. But, but to, to show that to the student when they're learning how to, how to make a, an adjective and noun mm-hmm. um, agree would be overwhelming. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't we don't point that out. But to point that out to a student after the fact of like, look at what you can do. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Kids don't know what their peers don't know. 
Yeah, Latin and, that's hard is not a thing they necessarily know to say. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I remember because I was homeschooled up through uh, fifth grade, and I went to a private school for sixth grade, and then a different private school for seventh grade, and then I went off to a boarding school after that. And in all three of those schools, Latin was a core subject. Mm-hmm. And so I thought going off to this boarding school, everybody takes Latin. I had a neighbor that I hung out with like every day and he went to the public school. I just assumed he was learning Latin. <laughs> okay. And maybe that's, uh, maybe I'm just a dunce. I don't know. But I feel like this is a general universal child experience. You yeah. assume everybody else has a life just like you. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the boarding school and I realized they were putting me back into Latin level one, cause they just assumed nobody learned Latin. And I was like, wait, not everybody learns Latin. And it was just, it was, it was, it was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Sometimes these conversations with your students, like in some ways you have to point out, like, go ask your friend if they know how to, how to, you know, make an English subject and verb agree a number or even if they know what those words mean, mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. they don't, they don't see the, the, like the, they they know what they're getting, but they don't see what they're not getting, or the or the absent, the lack of what they could be getting. So I think that's that's an important an important thing for kids to realize, mm-hmm. and they will eventually. I mean, but sometimes I mean, yeah, I mean, I never, I never told. You know, we homeschooled mostly, and uh, I never told my kids why we were doing it or or what they were getting. That they, they just got it, and then, like you say, they kind of assumed that other people got the same kind. We were just doing what, what they were doing in school at home. Right. No, actually. <laughs> yeah. I do. I do like your point though, Martin, about like, because when I, when I started teaching the philosophy class at HLS or when I taught classical studies, I'd always start the year off. And most, most time we go through a trimester or, or semester break, we'd come back and I'd reiterate, why are we studying this subject? Right. And that's not as broad as a conversation of why are we educating classically? It's more of a, why are we doing history? And I think that's helpful, especially for high schoolers to know, like, this is why we're doing this. This is why we're learning Latin. This is why we're learning, um, you know, geography or whatever we're doing. Um, but that's a wholly different conversation because it's it's a much more targeted one mm-hmm. of, hey, why are we learning literature? And I've I've done that too, but they've, they've never seemed to really be satisfied with the reason <laughs> I give. They're only satisfied with it after they've done it and they look back and they realize what they know now that they didn't know before. So how, Martin, I'm curious, did you handle any resistance if they just didn't want to do it? it, it was there a way in that that you, <laughs> that you helped explain, this is why this is important? Well, yeah. I mean, you give those things because then at least I guess they've got an answer and they know that there is an answer, even though it doesn't totally satisfy them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, because, and my ex- teaching experience is different from a lot of other people's teaching experience because I was at first, uh, you know, we, I founded a, a school that met one day a week. It was homeschoolers. And then later we founded Highlands and it was at first a two day week school, homeschoolers mm-hmm. mostly. And, you know, now it's a, now it's a full school. So it's somewhat different, but uh, I didn't, 
I didn't get much resistance, you know, okay. their, their parents sent them there and they thought they were supposed to do what they're supposed to do. And they pretty much did that. And, uh, well, and that's, that's a good point is, I mean, and if they didn't do it, it wasn't because they were resistant. It was because they were lazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and children will, I mean, whatever their norm is, they'll, they'll go through it without asking questions. I mean, adults do that, right? Whatever your routine is mm-hmm. off you go, you know? And so, um, generally speaking, the times that we have to explain why we're doing something uh, probably hmm. in, in effect needs, needs to happen less frequently than we think it needs to happen hmm. just because of that. Hey, I started here in kindergarten and then, hmm. you know, and I didn't ask questions cause I'm five years old and I did it in first grade and I don't ask questions cause I did it last year, you know? Well, hmm. the other thing also like with logic in particular and some of those more metaphysical concepts that are really from material logic rather than formal logic, which are in the formal logic at the beginning of the formal logic program, um, like the predicables and the, the uh, categories, um, you apply them to things in life. You take hmm. something that it looks so abstract but then you apply it to a specific situation. Mm-hmm. Um, the porphyrian tree, you know, you can apply that to issues like animal rights and human rights and on mm-hmm. all those things. And all of a sudden, then this thing that was, that was so abstract when you first looked at it, it actually explains a lot of things that are going on in life. So that's another thing too. It's just applying things oh, absolutely. to their experience. Augustine makes that point in his work on teaching the faith that like you've got to you've got to make what they're learning and this is he's particularly talking about the faith but applies universally to their lives mm-hmm. right and if you if you don't do that then it's 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 going to become a dead letter right because mm-hmm. they don't see why this is meaningful or or um or how it's actually applied so that it's it's so important to to do that sort of application Mm -hmm. and i mean it's rather shocking to my students but i do it because it's shocking but when we in in philosophy class when we're talking about substantial change Mm -hmm. i talk about my dog frank when he became a cadaver (laughs) and it it Mm -hmm. evokes it evokes a lot of emotion Mm -hmm. but then you realize like substantial change has has real effects in the world and and then what i related to as a pet how do I relate to it after it's died, mm. right? And does that make sense? That may be the same or different to a human being who has that's, died. And that's mm. the next step, right? Yes. And, mm. and so we could just talk about substantial change as, as, a, as an idea. Mm-hmm. But once we start saying, okay, in this moment, when this thing changes, all of a sudden, um, it's, it, you see their eyes just kind of, I mean, they bug out because I'm using such a shocking example, mm-hmm. but it's also they're realizing there's there's actually something here that's going to change the way I see the world and the way I interact with it. With right. a really and, tangible example. Mm-hmm. Right. And something I mentioned the porphyry and tree before, which is just a division of things in the world. There's uh, non-material substances like an angel. Mm-hmm. There are material substances like a rock. There are living material substances like a plant. There are sentient living material substances like an animal, and there are rational sentient living material substances, which are human beings. And now each of those things are fundamentally different Mm -hmm. from each other, which has a lot of implications on a lot of things. I mean, like evolution seems to be, pure evolution seems to be not 
not really rational in the sense that if if evolution was then why is there such a huge division between each of those that wouldn't it be just mm-hmm. a, a, a gradation a gradation and mm-hmm. it's not okay uh, and then you talk about well like uh, these animal rights people who think that they, we should treat animals the same as human beings no not necessarily mm-hmm. and you bring in Chesterton's remark that you know if you if you if you assert that you, we should treat animals the same as human beings that also means that we should treat human beings the same as animals mm. and that's a problem mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. in our world so it's those kind of things that if if you bring those those aspects of things out those real life applications that they're they get into you get into discussion about it they're interested mm-hmm. in that and you apply the principles that you just taught them and they realize, oh, okay, that's kind of useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's really helpful to hear. I'm I'm putting myself in Marion's shoes, imagining I have a 13-year-old and I can already find things that I could imagine she could draw out from even the day before when they were studying, whether it was logic or Latin or science or whatever it is. So I think that these are really helpful tips to say, even go back from what what did you discuss over the week and how did that come to bear on on just your studies, but also the way you see the world as a 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. But in the mind of the parent, she knows this is a, a big picture investment in the formation of mm-hmm. my child. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, um, and, and sometimes like the, defense for why we're doing one thing. I, I mean, I remember giving a talk to a, to a homeschooling or like a one day a week school kind of crowd. And I talked about algebra mm-hmm. and what algebra is and how algebra um, is, you know, it's finding a variable, but it's a, it's an abstraction also of geometry. You can prove, um, you know, different, you know, it's a shorthand way of doing things. And, and the a dad came up to me after that and he said, thank you for mm. that explanation because every night my kid was, has been coming home and, and I've been saying things like, why are you studying algebra? And so like the father was undermining, right? The kid's desire to learn. Mm. And he said, but now, now I understand it. And now I can encourage my son mm-hmm. in his learning of it. And so, you know, even, even in those conversations that you have of, of, of the application, you know, you, you need to know why don't, don't just say, well, Everybody learns algebra in eighth grade, so we're going to learn algebra, right? Like as a parent, you want to know, you want to have some sort of defense, but at the same time, then when you're taking, when you're doing that study and, and uh, you know, then you say, okay, now what we're actually doing is we're finding a variable. So let's plug in like in, in, in reality, when we need to, you know, figure something out, can our algebra help us? Right. And all of a sudden the kid sees there is an application here. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so, I mean, I, I think. Well, and the uh, the irony is, you know, it used to be that you didn't have to explain all this stuff. You mm-hmm. know, you knew that a really educated person knew Latin and Greek, mm-hmm. at least Latin. And knew mathematics. Uh, and, and knew, knew yeah. mathematics. And that's just what you learn to be a learned person. And so now we're in the situation where everything's been thrown up into the air. Yeah. And, and we're supposed to figure it out again. And we, we all want to be experimental. And then we start complaining about the things that we're not doing any, the consequences of the things we're not doing anymore. That's the whole critical thinking skills movement is a result of the fact 
that we abandon things like Latin study and logic study and that sort of thing. And now we can't think anymore and we're wondering why. Okay. And then we come back with, Hey, we've got a solution. And you, you know, they're perceiving it as, Oh, new solution, mm-hmm. something new. No, uh, it's something we used to do yeah. and we don't do anymore. And, and I, that surprises some people, but I think, I think yeah. that's and where it, we are. Passion. If you don't have to have these conversations, if you're passionate about what you're teaching too. Mm-hmm. You know, so for teachers and for parents, you know, if you come in and it's clear that you love this, mm-hmm. those those kids don't, aren't going to ask a question about why they're doing yeah, it. Because, they're like, I just love that. Yeah, because probably what we hear more of anything else, teachers asking these, not students. That's yeah. interesting. Teachers asking these mm-hmm. questions. They mm-hmm. don't know yeah. why teaching these things is important yeah. and they're working hard at doing it and they're trying to, but, but they're, why, why are we yeah. doing and this? And they don't see, and that's yeah. where homeschooling parents actually have an advantage here. Of being mm. able to see the big picture, mm-hmm. right? That's right. And whereas a teacher can get siloed into this is my one subject and I don't see how that fits in. Mm-hmm. And But a homeschooling parent can see the big picture, but that means the homeschooling parent also has a, a larger load of having to understand why they're doing each individual piece, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and, and so perhaps um, for Marion, maybe this is something that she's feeling more she wants the answers for it's not, she doesn't necessarily need to turn and explain it to her kids in the way that she needs answered. And it's not just, this is not just a problem with why teach the subjects. It's why teach the subjects the way we teach them. So you have somebody who's supposed to be teaching Latin and they're saying, well, what's wrong with an immersion approach to Latin, Mm. you know, and they don't understand that, that if you do it that way, you're missing the whole grammar study out of it. You know, uh, we don't even do much English grammar study because it's all in the Latin. It takes care of so many things. They don't know the teachers. Mm-hmm. They don't know any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, why teach traditional logic as opposed to modern mathematical logic? Well, because they're they're actually very different. Mm-hmm. They're doing very different things, and you have to explain that to them. So, so I spend a lot of my time explaining this to teachers who don't know it. Mm-hmm. And I do think our conversation today will be helpful to teachers. I mean, mm-hmm. Marion's a teacher in her home. Mm-hmm. But even it makes me think of our Sadalitas breakouts and all, you know, this is where we explain those things. Absolutely. But Absolutely. this is a, a bite-sized version of mm-hmm. a lot of those big picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Because those sessions, I was actually, Martin mentioned Latin grammar. I, I was actually just asked for this year's Sadalitas to do a session on, on like the, the connection between Latin and English and, mm. and why, mm-hmm. why we would teach Latin through English and, to, and and I've been asked to give particular examples of of where that comes up, like mm-hmm. how you see that, and so like we will we do dig into the nitty gritty there, but you know I don't know that you know insofar as like a, a big picture sort of covering formation and virtue and and you know subject by subject that that kind of thing that I I think this conversation has been really helpful for. Yeah, is there anything else you want to add? Covered a lot of ground. Though. We did. We did. We covered a lot of ground. I, I would say um, that a thought that this is just mm. a, a look into to Paul's mind, but, but a, a thought that goes <laughs> through, scary through my head sometimes when I'm at homeschool conventions and, um, you know, I have a long conversation with a parent about like why they should be teaching Latin or something and they seem convinced and then they say, well, I need to go get my child and see if they want to do it. And the thought that goes through my head is, 
you get to make that decision for them, mm-hmm. right? And sure. I understand when they're when they're juniors and seniors, and you're trying to make them independent and move them towards, you know, a, a life post high school or into college, whatever. I I do get that that you you do want to make sure you have buy in. But um, sometimes that happens so early that I'm like, no, you, you just need to tell your child this is what we're doing. And as Martin pointed out earlier, like in doing it, they will start to realize that they're getting good things out of it. Yeah, yeah. if you're if you're if it's required that you give them an exhaustive uh, explanation of why you're doing it that will be acceptable to the child. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, gentlemen, I enjoyed our conversation <laughs> and. Thank you for tuning in with us and joining us. We hope that the big picture and the practical tips are helpful to you uh, with your children and with your students, whether it's a classroom in your home or in a school setting. We hope that this was helpful to you and we hope that you join us again soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check out all the other shows on the Memoria Press Podcast Network. This has been Classical Etc. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you again soon. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time.